evening scripture reading is from book of 2nd Corinthians chapter 2 from verses 5 to 17. It's on page 1160 in the church Bible, otherwise you can follow it on the wall. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, he ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And whatever I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outbeat us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks to be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Now it is said that the blind, the blind boy described forgiveness as the fragrance that a flower breathes when it is trampled upon. A blind boy trying to define what forgiveness is, and he says it is the fragrance that a flower breathes when it is trampled upon. That's a lovely description and a very thoughtful description when you think of what it means for us to be forgiven to think that God forgives us. It's precious to think of God's forgiveness for our sins and how good it is to be forgiven as a free gift from God, the God who has been offended by our sins. But how do we feel about our own forgiveness of someone who has wronged us? Is that forgiveness the fragrance that a flower breathes? Or is it something that has to be forced from us? How do we feel if it's even something that we are prepared to do? We're much more likely to hold a grudge than we are to forgive. We are much more likely to 
harbor resentment and bitterness than to forgive. If we do forgive, it could only be a limited kind of forgiveness. We agree to forgive, but we say that we will never trust that person ever again. Never put ourselves into that position ever again where they can do that to us. That's not the kind of forgiveness that God gives us. It truly is the fragrance that a flower breathes when it is trampled upon. It's to the issue of forgiveness and restoration that Paul turns to in the first part of this chapter that we've read tonight. In chapter 2, 5 to 11, Paul refers to someone who has been disciplined by the church. Now, we can only speculate as to why this, why this individual has been disciplined, but it is likely that this man was the man who had spoken out against Paul in anger, who had spoken out and criticized Paul in public. Now, the church is quite often very slow to carry out discipline. Perhaps the person is popular in the church, and the elders fear that to deal with the person might cause a kind of an upset right across the church. If the church is at times slow to discipline, they are incredibly slow at removing the discipline and restoring the person to membership again. Now, of course, in the life of the church today, anyone removed from membership, what they simply do is just move down the road and join another church as if discipline didn't mean anything, as if it hadn't taken place. And there's seldom the opportunity arising for someone to stay around long enough for them to be restored from discipline. There was an occasion where a young couple came to the church that I was a minister in, and they said how they had been disciplined from a particular church. And I advised them, I said, you need to, this church discipline is a very serious thing. You need to go back and have that discipline lifted, and, and I will go with you and, and, and help you through that particular process. And I said, if you give me permission, I'll contact the elders of that church and talk to them to see what is the way forward in order that this discipline can be lifted because it actually is a serious business. And here Paul is dealing with the issue of church discipline and how it should be lifted and how there should be forgiveness. Now let me just take an aside here from this passage to describe uh, church discipline and why it is carried out. First of all, Church discipline, for it to be biblical, it must be carried out in love. It must be carried out in love. 
It's not to smack a person. It's not to embarrass a person. The ultimate aim is not to get them to feel bad. The ultimate aim is for their restoration, for their forgiveness. Remember what we said about the importance of forgiveness. We must have that in our minds. Discipline is carried out when someone does something that is wrong. It's therefore important that any church should provide the instruction of the Word of God. That we should know the doctrines of the church, that those should be taught, and that we should know how we ought to live in the light of those doctrines. Now, in the teaching of the Word of God, in the preaching of the Word of God, there is a discipline in itself, a discipline that comes from hearing the teaching of the Word of God itself. As we listen to God's Word being preached, the discipline comes as we hear that Word of God and as the Holy Spirit takes up that Word and speaks to us and points out to us where we have erred. And the discipline, we respond to that by confessing to the Lord and seeking the help of the Lord in order that we might have that correction in our lives and that we might live in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a corrective discipline that comes from the regular preaching of God's Word. And that is why it is important for us to put ourselves under the regular preaching of God's Word in order that that corrective discipline can have its work in our lives. When we see what the Bible says and we realize that we have not been obeying God's Word, then that Word calls us to repent. The conviction of sin and wrongdoing comes, uh, or the awareness of wrongdoing comes through the teaching of God's Word, and it serves us as a discipline. But sometimes, in spite of teaching and instruction, we still get things wrong, and we sin. Now, when we sin against our brother and sister, Jesus tells us what the first step is. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, Jesus said, If your brother and sister sin, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. If you're sending out an email, do not copy others in. Do not broadcast what's happening. It is between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Isn't that the spirit? We want to win them over. So that will actually shape the attitude, the mindset, the spirit in which we go to them. When we think of what we're going to say and how we're going to say, we remember that this whole process, that it must be surrounded in love, indeed baptized in love, and that we must go with that kind of spirit. 
This is usually the part that people leave out. If someone sinned against you, you should keep the matter just between you and the person who has offended you and go to them in a spirit of love. And after much prayer and much thought about what to say and how to say, go in a humble spirit, realizing that you too can easily fall. Go gently. Go with love. But you say, that will never work. I know the person. And I know that that step just will not work. It's not your call to leave out that step. It's not within your giving to decide to leave out that step. The Lord Jesus Christ says, this is the first step. This is what you must do. And you say, okay, I'll go and I'll get it done. You sinned against me. You're wrong. You repent. That's a real good attitude, isn't it? You're not going with the spirit of seeking to recover, of seeking to mend, of seeking to heal. You're going in to tick a box. I've got that done. I've got it out of the way. It may well be that you have to go on, one, on more than one occasion because you're seeking to uh, recover the situation. It may take a number of visits, a number of conversations, and it's, you will do everything out of love to exhaust that conversation, to exhaust that counsel. And then, if that breaks down, then the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the second step to take. We have a duty to try and give this first step every opportunity to work. But the problem is, sometimes I don't want it to work. I don't want it to be private. This person has upset me so much. I want everybody to know about it. And so in a kind of grudging way, I will go and get that first step over with so that I can then bring in the next step. It's the wrong attitude. We ought to go in love. We ought to go gently. Now the idea is, If we are actually known to be gentle people and loving people, it's easier then for us to go to the other person. But if we have the reputation for being critical, for nitpicking, for finding fault, it will be almost impossible for us to receive a good hearing because we've established a reputation about ourselves. So our reputation is important. How we walk before the Lord is important, especially when it comes. If someone has sinned against us, our heart's desire is that they might be restored, that they might be forgiven, 
that the relationship between us, that that might be healed. And so well, I, I will do everything within my power. I will pray about this. I will intercede before God about this. And I will try and find the most gentle words that I possibly can and try to understand where they are coming from in order that this first step where it's just a conversation, a private conversation between us, and we will do everything to exhaust that in order that we may give this a chance to succeed because our desire is to receive this result of forgiveness and reconciliation. But we all know that it might not work. But it could work if we put our energy and if that is our motivation, if that is our real desire. I I don't want to expose this person. I, I don't want this to go any further. I want it to be settled. But when it cannot be settled, and when we have exhausted every effort to make the first step work, to try to bring that matter to a conclusion where the person confesses their fault and you forgive them, and then the matter is closed. The sad fact is that so often we don't want the matter to end. We want it to escalate so that we can take our revenge. And our revenge is sweet when we think when everybody knows about it. The vast number of difficulties could be brought to a quiet conclusion if this first step could only be followed and guided by love and by concern. And of course, as I've said, that doesn't mean that we only have one conversation with the person. Quite often it takes more than the one conversation. But when that procedure breaks down and it is clear that you are not going to get anywhere, then it can escalate to the next stage. But if that fails, the Lord Jesus Christ spells out what, we, what is the next step. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now it's important to choose your witnesses wisely. Choose people who are mature. Choose people who are wise. Choose people who have a reputation for seeking peace. Choose people who you know are well respected by the person that you're going to and that they will trust because you want to give it the best opportunity, the second step. You're bringing someone whom they have confidence in. You're bringing someone who is well respected And they're coming to try to help. And again, that is a procedure of counseling that could take some time. It's more than one conversation. The idea is, the principle is, that you're keeping the number of people involved at all times to a minimum. Not in an effort to cover up iniquity or issues, But the smaller the the number of people involved, 
the better the chance of a full recovery of the person. Now, if that fails, if they refuse to listen, then it says, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, that does not mean taking the matter to the church meeting and that all the members are involved at this stage. It means taking it to the elders of the church and the elders then engage in counseling the person. And the idea is that the elders will take every opportunity and every means of counsel in order to recover the person. And it is only when that process of counseling breaks down, it is only then when the person refuses to listen to the elders, when that procedure has broken that the person then can be completely removed from church membership and that is conducted before the whole church. Now that process has been gone through. I don't know how, how well or efficiently or effectively it went through in Corinth. Given the state of the church in Corinth, I don't have high hopes for how they went about it. But nevertheless, they've come to the end point where this man has been removed from membership. And here the Apostle Paul is speaking to them in order that they will restore him. The purpose of the discipline has had its impact upon the person. They are sorry. They have repented. And the church now has a duty to restore the person and to forgive them and to express that forgiveness in quite a public way. Now here's a key verse that should govern how we proceed at all times. It's from Galatians 6 and 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person Gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Can you see how the counsel, how the advice, how the command there is that we go gently? We don't charge in. We go lovingly. We go tactfully. We go kindly. We go prayerfully. Now, with this particular man, the discipline has already served its purpose. He is grieved over his sin. And it's now time for the church to forgive and give him and to restore him. Obedience to God's word demands doing the hard work of church discipline, but then it also demands doing the hard work of forgiving, doing the hard work of restoring Many today, when they're speaking about forgiveness, they say that if you don't forgive, that that will harm you and that you need to forgive in order to release your own heart and not to become embittered. That's not the primary reason why we forgive. Whether forgiving 
does us ill or does us good is not the issue. We forgive because God commands us to forgive. We forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. Whether that helps our well-being or not is not the issue. We ought to forgive because God has forgiven us for Christ's sake. We, be, we forgive because it is the right thing for us to do. We forgive because God commands us to forgive others. But Paul now moves on to a, to a new subject. And as we read through 2 Corinthians, we, we have to wonder what Paul is getting at or whose teaching he was trying to counteract. In this passage from verse 12 to the end, we can see that there is a common theme of the idea of openness in Paul's preaching. Paul does not have a, a secret teaching that's on offer to any kind of elite body, but a message that was open to all. We've already referred to the group of teachers that had infiltrated the church at Corinth and set themselves up in opposition to Paul. They operated as a kind of secret society within the church. They took great delight in hinting at the secret teachings that were only available to the initiated. Sometimes within churches you will have groups that form as a church within a church. Sometimes within churches you have an inner group or a social group that forms and others feel isolated from that group. No matter how hard they try, people feel that they are not really part of the in-group. That ought not to be. You may have been a member in this church for 30, 40 years, and someone is only a member of the church for, for only six months. That person is part of the fellowship. That person is part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the local expression of it here as we, we gather in Hounslow. Now, while it was something very much different to, to just the clique that Paul was referring to, yet the response of openness and oneness of the gospel as a message for all is a lesson that we can all learn. As we look at how Paul proceeds on uh, speaking about the spirit of openness, First, he speaks about the opportunity that was open to him in Troas. Now, while opportunity presented itself, indeed, a door had opened for him to preach the gospel. He did not have that peace of mind. What troubled him? Well, just as he was troubled about this dear man who had been excommunicated from the church and had need to be restored, he was still concerned about the state of things in Corinth because Titus had not uh, returned to, to meet with him and to report to him. And we find in chapter 7 that Paul had had sleepless nights and he was disturbed because of his worries and his concerns for the church in Corinth. Is that the concern that we have for our own church here? that we're concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're concerned for our sister who is not able to be with us tonight. She has lost a brother. She may be soon losing a sister. 
we ought to show that love and concern by praying for her, by trying to identify with what it is that she will be going through. And we show our love and our concern as Paul shows the concern here for the church of Corinth. Paul had invested considerable time in this church, but the anti-Paul faction had arisen there and had invaded the congregation and was doing untold damage. And Paul has sent Titus to try and sort out the problem. But the more time that has passed and he doesn't hear, then the greater his anxiety for that church becomes. Such was the anxiety that Paul left the work in Troas and traveled to Macedonia in the hope of meeting up with Titus and getting some news about how things had gone in Corinth. The fact that Paul would leave an opening that was just developing indicates how heavily Corinth weighed upon his heart. Even though Paul was heavy in heart, God was still blessing his ministry. Difficulty in the ministry did not mean that blessing was held up. Notice what he says in verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of of him everywhere. To think of the gospel as an aroma. Going back to the definition that the young blind boy gave of forgiveness. It's what the flower breathes when it is trampled upon. And you think of the Lord Jesus Christ trampled upon, if you like, upon the cross. And the aroma that spreads from that message of the gospel. And that Paul, if you like, is, is being led in Christ's procession. That there is a procession that comes from the cross where Christ is leading that procession. And he's leading his people as they proclaim the gospel. And Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is doing that through the simplicity of the preaching of the gospel message. What a way to describe success in the gospel. Imagine someone asks, how are things going in the church at Hounslow? And you give them the answer, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. This triumphal procession is the way you might have described back then the victorious celebration of a, a Roman general who had returned victorious from the battlefield. In that victory parade, there would be members of that victorious army cheering and celebrating the great conquest over the enemy. And in that parade, there would have been those who would have been captured and were prisoners of war part of the army that had been defeated. Now, what group did Paul belong to? He was without doubt a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet often spoken of himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that Paul has used this metaphor before, and we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9, where it says, For it seems to me, that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. 
Whatever side Paul is on in this victory parade, the point is that he is on parade. It's an open thing. This is not a covert operation of clandestine sharing of secret codes, but an open and barefaced declaration to the whole world that Christ has come to save. This is a message for all. It's not for a little select group. It is for everyone. It is to the whosoever. It is to all the world. We preach and proclaim the gospel that Christ Jesus died upon the cross and that if anyone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be saved. There's a great lesson here for us that we too are always on display for Christ. I, as a child of God, I am an ambassador for the gospel. You are an ambassador for the gospel. Whether people honor you as one of God's army or mock you as one of the clowns, you are nevertheless a trophy of the conquest of Christ as the gospel goes forth in this world. An instrument of Christ's intention to conquer the battle and to extend the kingdom of God. That's quite a challenge, especially when we think of, of our own days. Every day, you are an ambassador for, for Christ. How should an ambassador behave? How should an ambassador speak? Paul walked away from a door that was open because he was so concerned about the church and what was going on in Corinth, but he never stopped being ambassador. The second lesson is that there are no private groups within the church, no cliques, or at least there shouldn't be. There's one message with all its range of teaching, and that message is a message for all. As Christians, it is designed that our lives should be an impact upon others. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To, to the one, we are an aroma that brings death and to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? When you think of what we are as ambassadors, is there something that exudes from us that gives the idea that there is a message of life? If that is how he lives, if that is how she lives, then there must be something meaningful about what Christ has done in their lives. Now the gospel either softens or it hardens. It always does its work. It does not return void. It will soften some hearts and it will harden others. Now what is our job as Christians? I don't know, you don't know which heart it will soften, which heart it will harden. You don't know who God's elect are and neither do I. But we preach the gospel to everyone. And we leave the business 
of the impact of that gospel to God and to the Holy Spirit who will work that gospel to soften the heart or harden the heart as God sees fit. But our job, our responsibility is to proclaim the message, is to proclaim the gospel. It's not a secret message. It's not a hidden message. It's not for a tiny little group. It's for all. And we need to go out to all just in the same way as we are to show love in that case of discipline and restoration, so we are to show love in how we are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ and how we become an aroma to those who are being saved and indeed those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma that brings death to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Indeed, who is equal to such a task? Thanks be to God. Through Christ, we can do all things who gives us strength. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that we have received, the forgiveness that we have received. We thank you for the gospel message that we have received. And Lord, we have to proclaim that gospel and we have to forgive others as you, for the sake of Christ, have forgiven us. Help us, our God, in these duties to glorify you and to obey you because we ask it in the Saviour's name. Amen.